Uh, if you know me uh, at all, you know that um, I'm a big music fan. Uh, I listen to music kind of all the time, pretty much everything I'm doing. If I'm working in the yard, uh, if I'm working on a sermon, uh, whatever I'm doing, I usually have my headphones in. I'm kind of that way. Uh, part of that, uh, when you do that, when you listen to music all the time, I've heard it said that over the years you end up having a soundtrack for your life. Right. The, the songs that you listen to and they immediately take you back to different things in your life. Uh, music is, is that way in, in our senses tied and the way our memory works. And so a certain song will spark things and you'll remember uh, very vividly different times. And so I could look at my whole life and go back in different seasons and pick one or two songs that kind of encapsulates uh, different times in my life and the way that I experienced or thought about those things. And uh, the last couple of years, uh, probably maybe two years ago, two and a half years ago, there's a song called uh, The Little Things That Give You Away. And it's a song that I've just listened to over and over. And I'd say uh, that song kind of clings uh, closely at the moment. Uh, it's maybe the song for this season or, or one of them. Uh, if you know me at all, you'd also know uh, kind of the featured arch artist of the soundtrack of my life things, the little things that can give you away, which is you too. And so they're probably the one over and over throughout that. But I was thinking about this particular song and why it's kind of the song for this season and where it is. And uh, part of it, I think, is getting older uh, each year. Uh, I just had a birthday last week. And it's like it's one of those things where you get to an age where it's like a birthday is just another day. Like it's not that big of a deal anymore. And part of that comes with getting older. But then part of it is even in our body, the last couple of years, we've lost some very dear, close friends over the last couple of years. And it's difficult when that happens. Uh, many of you knew uh, Ralph Drew, who passed away almost two years ago. And uh, when Ralph died, I remember two weeks or so, one or two weeks after Ralph died, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night at three o'clock in the morning. And I sat up in my bed and I gasped and I was wide awake. And I went, I am going to die and it was so real, in a very real way. I hadn't felt it. Not that I didn't know that before. Not that I didn't go to bed not knowing that I was going to die. Or not that I hadn't considered that or thought about it before. But I knew it in a way that I had never known before. And it was so immediate. And it was there. And I think part of that was just going through that season, the people that we lost uh, in our body. And going through that and feeling that. And so... Different songs for different seasons. And so the little things that give you away. So sometimes I can't believe my existence. Sometimes I see myself from a distance and I can't get back inside. Sometimes the air is so anxious. All my tasks are so thankless. And all of my innocence has died. Sometimes I wake at four in the morning where all the doubt is swarming and it covers me in fear. Full of anger and grieving so far away from believing that any sun will, re will reappear. Sometimes the end is not dawning. It's not coming. The end is here. It's a pretty intense song. And the writer of the song has relayed that it was went through a very near-death experience in his life. And that's what prompted him to write the song. And so when I've awakened in the middle of the night, and since that day that's happened a few other times where I wake up and it's very clear. And I've thought about that a lot, about in the small hours when that kind of creeps in. And I'm very aware of my mortality and the, the way that works. It's like, what exactly is going on? I think some of it has to do with death itself. Uh, if you do a poll, uh, a lot of people have done polls through the years on what our greatest fears are. And almost every poll when they do that, number three or four is death. It's never one or two. 
It's always right behind public speaking and spiders. But they say the only reason that it's three or four, and sometimes it's not on the list, psychologists say, is because we won't even let our minds go there. That we just kind of push it out. We just pretend like it's not real and it's not actually going to happen. And so uh, I, I think our society's good at avoiding it. We're good at not talking about it or thinking about it or kind of pushing it aside. And so that's why it's always number three or four. But sometimes uh, it sneaks up on us. Right? Sometimes in the middle of the night you wake up and you're very aware of it. Sometimes it's at a funeral, the loss of a loved one or something difficult going on. And then suddenly we're aware of it. Sometimes it's not dawning and it's not coming. It's here and it's right in our face. And so when I think about waking up in the middle of the night, and I've thought about this a good bit since then, I don't think I'm afraid of dying. I don't think that's it. At least for me, as I think about it, I've thought about that a lot. Um, I'm not afraid to face my mortality. But part of it uh, in the darkness in the middle of the night is the realization that life is fleeting. That we have a certain finite number of days that we get to live on this earth like this where we walk by faith. Uh, we sometimes sing a song here called All Glory Be to Christ. And there's a line in it that says, You who boast of tomorrow's gain, tell me what is your life? A mist that vanishes before the dawn, all glory be to Christ. Right? That comes from the book of James. Our life is but a mist. We have a finite number of days. And so we try to deal with that the best we can. And so that's what I wake up and I think, am I leveraging all that I have in the time that I have for God's glory to the best of my ability? It's not afraid of dying. It's the fleeting nature of this life. And so maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can relate to that in some way or somehow. Maybe it's you feel like time is slipping through your hands. For me, I can't believe it's Thanksgiving. I can't believe we're on Thanksgiving again. It seems like we just did Christmas and here it is and the years seem to be speeding up. Or maybe if you're real honest, you think about it and you wake up in the middle of the night and the, the questions are more like, I don't know what happens after I die. Maybe you go, I don't really know. And that concerns me or I'm not sure what that looks like. Or maybe you say, I believe and I believe God is real and I believe what Jesus has done is real. But why would God let me in? And some of those things come and kind of tug at us or or maybe you're here this morning and you go I don't think about any of this and this is like the most downer start of any sermon ever and why are you talking about this right it's Thanksgiving and we're going to celebrate and you're talking about death and the fleeting nature of life but I start here this morning because we're all going to face this sometimes in our youthful exuberance we don't think we are and as the years go by suddenly we realize it's coming It's a reality that all of us will face. And so this morning, what I want us to do, we're going to close out the letter of first John that we've been studying and we've been looking at. And I want us to look at what John says here at the end of this book that kind of answers that question. When we wake up in the middle of the night and we're faced with this, when uh, the darkness is swarming and you wake up and you sit up, what do you say to yourself? How do you answer that? What is the answer to that? And what John says and what he's been saying all the way through this letter is wherever you are, however you're dealing with those questions right now, the answer is the same. And the answer is Jesus. And what he's done and what he is doing and what he's going to do. And so this is a very simple outline as we finish First John today. We're going to look at Jesus, what he's done, 
what he's doing and what he's going to do. And it answers every bit of this angst that we feel as it surrounds death. And so if you would look with me at first John chapter five, we're really going to focus in on six to the end of the chapter. But I want to go back to verse one of chapter five for just a second where we were last week. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. And so John's been talking a lot about this idea of being born of God and being his and what it means being in Christ and what he's done. Uh, This is the answer of everything that we're talking about, being born of him. Look at what it says in verse four and five. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? And so I want us to consider what he's saying there about who Jesus is, that he is the son of God and what he's done and what he's going to do. And and I want us to think about that this morning because it really goes right to the heart of this question. And so start with just this idea of what Jesus has done. And I want us to think of it two ways. I want us to think about the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth as God came into time and space and what he accomplished. So what he's done in that regard. But I also want us to think about what Jesus has done in your life. You personally and how it has come to bear in your life, what Jesus has done in history, but in your life. And so think about what he's done in history. Look at verse six with me. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. And if we agree. Receive the testimony of men. The testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has been born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son has the testimony in himself and whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son and whoever has the son has life and whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. And so right there at the beginning in verse six, he starts to talk about this idea of the water and the blood and it and it bearing testimony about who Jesus is. And if you notice, it says he talking about Jesus came by water and blood. And there's a lot of debate throughout the history of the church, exactly what John is talking about when he says the water and the blood. Uh, there was a the time uh, a lot of the, the great reformers would say, well, the water and the blood is talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then some would say, uh, even going back further, that the water and the blood that John's thinking of John's gospel that he writes in chapter 19, that as Jesus is crucified and the Roman soldier pierces his side and water and blood come pouring out, that that's what he's thinking about. Or still, and I I favor this myself, is that the water and the blood is is Jesus's baptism and his death or, or even the water being his birth and his baptism. And and I think the reason I would say that is everything that we've looked at, if you've been with us as we've been walking through this book and talking about what John's saying and what he's teaching and what he's trying to correct in some different areas, is that Jesus has come physically, literally in the flesh. And one of the heresies of the day was that Jesus was not fully flesh, that he hadn't come, that he was fully human and fully God. And John's correcting this and he's talking about this throughout this book. 
And I think when he talks about the water and the blood, he's talking about Jesus being born of a man coming into the world, that he's fully God and fully man. And this is an absolute important distinction of what we believe as Christians. It's a historic confession of our faith that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And he comes into time and space. And it's important because this was under attack in John's day. And so he's highlighting and he's coming back to this over and over that you can't deny this essential part of what we believe. So I don't know if you've, you've noticed, if you've been here for a while, you're probably aware, but in our bulletin each week, there are questions and answers with our daily, uh, our reading plan, part of the discipleship plan that's in the back of the bulletin. And those come from the New City Catechism. There's, there's 52 that go with the weeks of the year, and there's one each week that we highlight in there. If you've never seen it, you can go download the app for free. You can get it online. And what it is, is just basic Question and answers of huge theological truths, doctrinal, foundational things that help us learn those. Just a tool to be used to help us learn those. But we put one each week in there and we go through that. And if you go to the New City Catechism and you look at questions 21 and 22 and 23, it points us to Jesus being fully God and fully man and why it's so important. And so question 21 says, what sort of redeemer brings us back to God? One who is truly human and also truly God. Question 22 says, what, why must the Redeemer be truly human? That in human nature he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin and also that he might sympathize with our weakness. And then the 23 says, why must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective and also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. And so it brings us to the very heart of the atonement and what Jesus has done for us. And so I think John's pointing us to Jesus' finished work when he says through the water and the blood. And he's pointing us to his perfect sinless life and his death on our behalf. And Jesus must be fully God and fully man for that to be effective. And so it's important that we get that distinction. It's at the very heart of of the gospel only through Jesus' perfect obedience for us, what we've not done. Jesus comes and lives the life that we have not lived. And then he willingly lays down his life and he dies the death that we deserve. And when he does, when he lays down his life, he takes our sin upon himself to bear the wrath of God on our behalf. They're satisfying God's wrath that we can be brought back into full relationship with our creator. And he does this by grace, through faith, and he gives it to us. And then he imputes or gives to us his perfect righteousness. And so it's important that he's fully human, that he's fulfilled the law perfectly. And then he gives us that so we can now be brought into this relationship. And I think John has all of this in mind when he talks about the law, uh, the, the blood and the water and Jesus coming through. When it says he came by water and blood and he's done this for us. And so he's pointing us to the very heart of the gospel. And so I want you to just think for a moment. If you wake up in the middle of the night and you go, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but I'm not sure that I've done enough. I'm not sure that he would welcome me into his presence. Dear friends, you're putting your faith in you and not in Jesus. Because Jesus has done perfectly what you cannot do for you. He's finished that work. It is done and completed. 
And so you can rest in the finished work of what Jesus has done. But I want you to think for a second, not just what he's done. That's the doctrinal basis of our belief. That God himself has come and done for us what we can't do for ourselves. And we receive it by faith through grace. But I want you to think about how that happens in your life. I think this is important because it goes to our understanding of assurance and how we can rest. So not only what God has done in history in Jesus, but how this truth touches down in your life. In verse one there, when he says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. This idea in the scripture being born again, being regenerated, that the spirit moves in your life. And it bears witness. And here he's talking about the water and the blood and the spirit bear witness. And the spirit comes and brings you from death to life. He illuminates your heart. He opens your mind. He shows you that you would see what Jesus has done for you. And so you need to understand this because this is so very important. On the cross, Jesus purchased your salvation by living the perfect life that we haven't lived and dying for you and taking his sin. But he also purchased your ability to believe. Ephesians chapter two and verse eight says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not the results of work so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are saved by grace through faith and the faith, even the faith is not your own doing. Jesus has purchased that on the cross. And the spirit comes and he shows you and he illuminates your heart and your mind and he points you to Jesus and you you cling to him in faith. And it's all because God is faithful every step of the way. It's his doing, not just what he does in history, but what he does in your life. When you come to faith, God has moved in your life to bring you to faith in him. And so when we say, what has Jesus done? He's done it all. Every bit of it. Every part. And so when we say, what has he done? He laid down his life for you, but then he's brought you into this saving relationship. The second thing I want you to see, though, is what is he doing? Not just what he has done, but how he's still at work. He didn't just do this and now you have faith and then he's like, see you later. He's at work in all of this. And so look at what he says in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, and we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. And to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. But all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. There's a lot right there, a lot he's just said. But the first thing I want you to consider is that 
what God is doing now is he says we have a confidence to come boldly to him with all things. And he says that right there in verse 13 and 14 and 15, he says, you come to him with this confidence. This is the confidence that we have. I say this frequently, but when you're reading your Bible, basic Bible study, hermeneutics, how we study our Bible, look for the things that are repeated. Usually they're alerting us to things that are important. Three times in John's letter, he talks about confidence, the confidence we have to come directly and boldly to the throne of God because of what Jesus has done. We have access to come directly to God. Not by our righteousness, but by what Jesus has done and His righteousness, and we are now in Him. And so please hear that. You, you don't need a priest. You have a great and perfect high priest in Jesus. You don't have to go through a mediator because Jesus is your mediator. He is the one. Right? Hebrews chapter 10, we have a great and high priest over the house of God, so let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And so we start to think about what he is doing. And John says you can bring all things to him. You have this confidence to come before him and you have this confidence that he's going to finish this work, that he's going to bring you from one degree of glory to another, that he's going to bring to completion that what he started, the way Paul says it in Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. He's done it all, and he's not done with you. And he's still doing it all, and he's still bringing you along the way. And he's taking who you now are in Christ and making it real in your life from one degree of glory to another. And he's going to bring it to completion. He is actively at work in your sanctification now. And so whoever or wherever you are, or whatever you're struggling with, you come fully to him with confidence. That he is at work. He is the one that is over all things in this world. And you can come to Him with any and all things. And you can come boldly before Him. You get to verse 16 and 17, and realize it gets a little bit tricky. He says some things, if you're reading, especially in verse 16, and you go, what is He talking about? Verse 16, He says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. But to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. You go, what? I think part of what he's talking about here, we stop and go big picture, the Bible, all sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death. Death has entered the world because of rebellion, because of our sin. And so when he's talking about sin that leads to death and sin that doesn't lead to death, what is he talking about? And he's talking about what in Scripture it talks about the second death. This damnation, being put away from God for eternity, bearing his wrath for your sin because you are not in Christ. What we call hell. And I think he's talking about the two. And I think the distinction here, given everything that we've seen in this book and the way he's talking about it, is he's, he's been addressing that there are anti-Christs that have come into the church that are spreading false doctrines and looking to lead people astray. And he's had very severe language and harsh rebuke for that throughout. And so people that are denying the deity of Jesus, people that are, that are trying to lead, actively lead other people astray. 
And I think that's what he's talking about, the distinction between a brother in Christ that has sin in their life, that is, that is struggling, and, rest, and he says, you come before God and you pray. And you pray that God is going to deliver and he's going to work and he's going to lead us. He's going to finish what he started. And the distinction versus those that are actively seeking to lead people away. Doesn't mean you don't pray for those that are not believers. I don't think that's what he's saying. But I think he's making a distinction between the two. But when you see that, what I want you to get out of this, of what he's doing, the context here of what he's talking about, is that those that he calls, he justifies, and those he justifies, he glorifies. He's going to finish the work. He's going to bring it to completion. And he's actively working in your life, even right now, to finish what he has started. And you can trust him in that work, and you can come before him, laying that before him in all things. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Our sanctification is clinging to Jesus in faith that He's going to finish this. And you continue to seek after Him knowing that He has started it and He's brought you to this and He's going to bring you to the end. And so you continue to seek Him. He's actively at work in your sanctification. What about what He's going to do? Look at verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. I think He ends there. Little children, keep yourselves. I love that He says that over and over. Think of John as an old man writing to the church. He keeps saying, little children... Just trust me on this. Keep yourself from it. Put your focus. What is an idol? An idol is putting anything in God's rightful place. Elevating something else above it. Putting your works over Jesus' finished work. You put Jesus at the center. Don't let anything else vie for that affection. You keep him as the center of all things. But look at what he says is coming. Again, repeated things throughout the letter. Four times he's talked about eternal life. And he gets to the end here. And he says, we are in him who is true and in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Four times he's talked about eternal life. He started the book that way in chapter one. The eternal life, which was with the father, has been made manifest to us. In chapter two, he says, this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. The beginning of chapter five, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And then right here at the end, he says the same. The true God who is the eternal life and we are in him. He says it over and over and over again. And it's one of those things we say a lot within the church. Probably the most famous Bible verse, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And it's something we say frequently in the church. And yes, I'm saved. And when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. And it kind of gets collapsed into this thing that's kind of, off in the distant future. Disembodied souls floating in the clouds with harps and all the kind of bad ideas we have about what's to come. But in, in light of everything he said in this book, when we think about this idea of eternal life, 
the eternal life that is secured by what Jesus has done and what he's doing in your life. And he's going to bring it to fruition. You are in him and he is the eternal life. This is coming and it's dawning and it's all because of what Jesus has done. And we start to think about what does that actually look like? And you enter into the love of the father who created you completely and fully in every way where there is no fear and there is no death and there is no disease and there's no hostility and there's no sadness and there's no frustration and there's only a fullness of joy that is complete and total and it's all because of what Jesus has done. He is faithful. He is faithful before the foundation of the world. He was faithful as he called you. He's faithful in bringing you to completion and when it does, He is faithful in this glory that is beyond anything that we can comprehend. And so when you wake up in the middle of the night or you sit uh, at a funeral and suddenly you're aware this is going to happen. This is coming in my life. What do we do? We look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so I'm just going to end here with Romans chapter eight, the way Paul says it. He encapsulates everything that we're talking about so perfectly when he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died and more than that was raised who is at the right hand of the Father and is indeed interceding for us, what can separate us from the love of Christ? He goes on to say nothing. It's because of what Jesus has done and what he's doing that we have confidence in what he's going to finish. And it's all because of him. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious truth of the gospel. That is what you have done on our behalf. I pray that when we wrestle with making it about other things, that you would remind us that it is your righteousness, that it is your finished work, that it is you alone that has done it. I pray that when uh, there's there's struggle thinking through those things, that you would just uh, move powerfully, that the Spirit would come, that you would... Uh, apply the truth of who we are in you, that you would remind us that we are yours and that you have finished this work and we can rest in you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.